Hi, welcome to Grace Intersect. The goal of this podcast is to help us have an increasingly clear understanding of grace. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer. Thank you for joining us today. There are debates, and then there are really good debates. In the early 1900s, a couple of British intellectual types entertained the public with their brilliant and witty competition of ideas and words. G.K. Chesterton was a large man, around six foot four and 300 pounds. A cigar-smoking, wine-drinking, meat-eating man in his mid-30s, he had a larger-than-life personality. George Bernard Shaw was a non-smoker, non-drinker, vegetarian in his 60s. An Irishman, he was quite British proper. They were also opposites politically. Plus, Chesterton was an Orthodox Catholic and Shaw an atheist. These two knew how to debate, and they did it often to sold-out audiences. One debate started out with Chesterton noting the slender form of Shaw and said, To look at you, anyone would think a famine had struck England. Shaw immediately retorted, To look at you, anyone would think you would have caused it. Their issues for debate were of immense importance, and they could passionately, articulately argue their positions. Interestingly, through it all, they had great mutual respect for each other. My introduction to debate was on a far smaller scale, though to those participating and attending, they seemed to be just as weighty. The church I grew up in thought it was quite unique among Christian denominations. In fact, many thought we were so unique that we were the remnant church. The understanding was that when Jesus returns, only a very small number of people would be able to meet him, since we were the only true church that had to be us, and we were small. There were other denominations who felt the same way, but, of course, our teachings were more accurate. Some of our leaders and passionate members would debate people from those other denominations. While it was mostly like friendly competition, there were times when tensions could get pretty thick. The mindset that comes out of all of that culture is one of feeling quite exclusive on the one hand and stressed out about maintaining one's qualifications to be part of the remnant on the other hand. You could be proud that you were part of this remnant organization, but you'd better be careful not to cross organizational dictates. Being a remnant, by default, meant you had to be careful not to let the errors of the other denominations deceive you. So we would pick out and study their various errors so we could feel confident in our positions. Teachings that were considered an error included Sunday worship, the Trinity concept, eating non-kosher foods, observance of Christmas and Easter, because of their secular origins, eternal security, also called once saved, always saved, and heaven. Being at odds with so much of traditional Christian teachings, it is no wonder our church was so small. Some of us bemoaned that it seemed like we just couldn't grow our numbers much at all, while others just chalked it up to qualifying for the remnant status. As I got into my upper teen and young adult years, I was more exposed to the general Christian world. While living out the teachings of my church, I had questions about some of them. Now, with greater involvement with other Christians, even more questions were hitting. It's hard to buck tradition. Tradition and cultural mindsets can become so ingrained it's hard to conceive living any other way. Normal is comfortable. Maybe during our young adult season of life, we are most susceptible to change. We are exploring our expanding world with more awareness and are more open to new possibilities for questions we have. I remember writing an article when I was in my mid-twenties. I submitted it for official church publication, though I knew it would never be published. The article was encouraging the adoption of most traditional Christian teachings. 
Exceptions were made for requiring observance of the Ten Commandments, which of course included the Sabbath, of kosher foods, and not observing Christmas and Easter. I tried to get my dad's input on the article, but he played it pretty coy. He did encourage me to send it in, but he also knew that it wouldn't get any positive attention. I appreciated his support as I journeyed through my questions. Sometimes I wondered how much he quietly questioned some of the teachings of the church. Some questions are far more important than others. For example, I wrestled with the idea of eternal security. That is the teaching that once we accept the grace gift of Jesus and come into relationship with him, our future is secure. No matter what, no matter how badly we mess up in our thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors, Jesus will never kick us out of our relationship with him. We may be a wayward child, but we are always part of the family. He would not disown us. In my church, you had to be sure to ask forgiveness for any possible transgressions or your relationship with God was at risk. Of course, the worse the transgression, the more likely the fall from grace, unless you really begged hard for forgiveness to show you really meant it. Come to find out, my church wasn't the only one who thought this way. Actually, quite a few do. To some extent, it's understandable why people think this way. First of all, it's totally normal. It's how we operate in our everyday lives. When we mess up, we expect to be held accountable. The worse the offense, the greater the punishment. Mercy and grace may come into play on occasion, but if we keep messing up, even that disappears. In fact, our typical sense of justice requires us to think and act this way. If we don't, anarchy is the logical end. Also, if you cherry-pick verses in the Bible just right and connect dots that aren't necessarily designed to be connected, along with your preconceived notion of the desired outcome, you might be able to make some type of argument against the teaching of eternal security. But it's a stretch. It just doesn't seem like it when that is all you've known growing up. What is actually happening here is that it is really hard to accept that God would not run out of grace. It just goes against everything that makes sense to us so we have to find justification for it. In fact, we might be able to teach God a few things since he seems to get his priorities of justice and mercy mixed up on occasion. Note the sarcasm, please. Bottom line, we are relying on our human experience to determine how God should do things. Sarcasm again. If he would just listen to us, this world would be in much better condition. Okay, let's be honest. Sometimes he should just listen to me because there are times when you are just wrong. Okay, you're really getting the sarcasm now, right? As was mentioned in the last episode of Grace Intersect, God is love. He is pure love. He is perfect love. That can't be said for you or me. So we should defer to his plan and his judgments. God's perfect love is why he created us. He wants to be in perfect relationship with us. Our messing up doesn't change that. Our messing up means that we are imperfect, but he has a solution to that. We can become perfect. Since we can't do that by ourselves, he is willing to do it for us. With just the slightest hint of faith and belief in Jesus and what Jesus did for us, we are adopted into his family. When we are adopted into the family of God, he has promised to never disown us no matter what. His grace extends from joining the family to a permanent family relationship. Once we are part of his family, there is no going back. He has made sure of it. The idea of having a love relationship with Jesus wasn't focused on much in my church. Jesus was the way to salvation from death, but then God the Father took over. He was the one we spoke of when referring to our relationship with the divine. And what a relationship it was. 
He was the one carefully judging every moment how we were doing, and you didn't want to make him upset. If you weren't sure if he was upset, there were plenty of people who would help you figure that out. Of course, it was just what you would expect from a relationship with a very exacting, strict father whose punishments were to be feared. But the relationship paradigm does make sense of our whole Christian experience, if it is the correct one. Admittedly, when we project our earthly understanding of relationships onto the divine, it is hard to grasp. It is only a shadow of reality at best. But that's okay if the divine is love. From our limited human perspective, it is hard to even come close to comprehending a deity level of love. This is a love so pure and so perfect it could only be God. It helps define God. He is love. He is perfection. He is God. By now, you can tell I see all of these as synonymous. How is it that this spiritual entity interacting with his physical creation, you and me, after we mess up and are imperfect? Well, he connects with us in a very spiritual way. In some respects, that seems tricky because our spiritual component is our least understood part of us. We function casually with our physical, mental, and emotional components. The spiritual component seems exceedingly more vague, subtle, and even suspicious. Yet, God is a spirit, and this is where love most deeply meets us. This is where he most intimately relates to us. So how do you define love? Is it an emotion? Is it a decision? Is it a soul connection that goes beyond the heart and mind? We know that there is something that connects us to another person that is so deep that we would give our life for that person, like what Jesus did for us. That is God in us. That is love. While love in us is limited and incomplete, we do have a taste of God, and God is love. We can only love to the extent we do because of God. God calls us mind, heart, and spirit to be in relationship with him. He knows we have messed up big time and there is no fixing ourselves. He asked Jesus to rescue us and Jesus said, yes. He agreed to experience the consequence for our imperfections. Perfection died for imperfection. That is perfect love. Having done that, Jesus then rose from death to life. That broke the ultimate consequence for imperfection. Jesus not only paid the price of imperfection, he provided the power for an eternal life with him. Love didn't go part way. Love went all the way. Why? Well, that is love. Have you noticed that love requires relationship? Love can be a one-way street. We can truly, deeply love another without them relating to us with love in return. I think we have all experienced that on some level. God also desires a love connection with us. He invites us to a love relationship, to a love family. How do we respond? Do we have good feelings because someone would love us this much? Do we think it through and decide an eternal life of love is a good decision? Do we sense deep within our spirit a drawing to another spirit where we can rest in a relationship of peace, security, and love? Here is what Jesus said, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Oh, how God loves you and me. How Jesus loves you and me. They are love and are extending their perfect love to you and me. Continuing with what Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. 
So God, so love is inviting us to be spiritually rescued from our imperfections and our inevitable death. If we accept the invitation, we join in their perfection, their love. We are in eternal relationship with them, with love. Once there, there is no going back. That sounds pretty secure to me, and I accept it. Jesus gave other indications of how secure we are when we are in relationship with him. Once, when speaking to a crowd in Jerusalem, he spoke of those who would believe in him. He said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. That sounds quite certain to me. Never perish? Not ever to be snatched away from his grasp? We fail others and ourselves, and they fail us. We aren't pure or powerful enough to be perfect. We can't promise perfection or eternal life. God can. Jesus can. And they have. Who can we count on more than God? Do we believe what Jesus is saying? Another time Jesus was speaking to a group who were trying to understand who he was. He explained God's will for them. Now this is the will of the one who sent me that I should not lose one person of everyone he has given me. That is God's love at work. One of the followers of Jesus who was very close to him wrote to a group, some who were believers and some not. And this was like 40 years or more after Jesus had died and was resurrected. He wrote this assurance to them. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. All those years later, John was still confident in his relationship with Jesus and wants to encourage others in the spiritual family. He says we can know that we have eternal life. Another follower of Jesus who was personally mentored by him wrote to a group of people giving similar assurances about their eternal life. He wrote, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Paul had no doubt about the future of believers. Why should he? The Holy Spirit was promised to the believers in Jesus. This is God's Spirit guaranteeing our relationship with him. We are tight with God, sealed, blended, bonded. It's a wrap. Our love relationship with God is certain. The same power of love that graciously provides our way to spiritual perfection is the power that sustains us for eternal life. There is much more that could be said to show how completely we are secure in the grace and love of God. Perhaps that will show up in future episodes of Grace Intersect. At this point, we might still be wondering about our inevitable failures. When we think of our failures, we are probably thinking about our attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors that we know or at least suspect are less than perfect. Shouldn't that disqualify us from continuing in the grace we have received? Hopefully, some of the earlier part of this episode is coming to mind. God, thankfully, doesn't do things our way. Here's what we need to know. The attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors of believers don't define us. The sum total of all of those are not our identity. Oh, they may describe us outwardly, but inwardly, God has given us a new identity. He gave us a new heart and a new spirit with which to relate to Him. We have spiritually died and raised up in a new spirit. The same powerful God of love, whose grace brought us into certain and eternal relationship with Him, will sustain our relationship. 
It wasn't up to us to make ourselves perfect, nor is it up to us to maintain our perfection. It always was all God's doing and will continue to be all his doing. In the first century, Paul was mentoring a young pastor named Timothy. In a second letter to Timothy, Paul reminded him, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, since he cannot deny himself. God has promised if we put just a little faith in what Jesus has done for us, if we accept his invitation to join in a love relationship with him, nothing, absolutely nothing, will be able to pry us away. A most trustworthy God will not deny himself. Through his grace, his love conquers all threats to our relationship with him. That's the God who is our Father. He remains faithful. Thanks for listening today. My name is Jerry Moldenhauer, and this is the Grace Intersect Podcast. As we process together, please know that your thoughts and or questions are always welcome. Comments may be made at the graceintersect.com website or emailing comments at graceintersect.com. Have a great day.